You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.43, Bring Me the Head of Haman Karn. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and it's finally time for me to make my play, to backstab my co-host and become the sole ruler of Neo MSB. The new what now? Huh? What? You heard nothing. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, sleeping with one eye open from now on, and truly at a loss to predict how this is going to end. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 459 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Andy F. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This episode releases on Saturday, July 17th. I was a little off on my last count, but now we have just two episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta remaining. As we've done before, we will wrap the season with an episode looking back at the series as a whole, before taking a short hiatus to rest and prepare for season four, which will be quite different from the seasons we've done so far. Also coming up soon, the podcast's third birthday, and our annual promotion. We will keep making updates and announcements here on the podcast, but for all the latest MSB news, you can also follow us on social media or on Patreon. And to answer the question you are all asking, there will be new pins. They're in production now. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 45, The Battle of Axis, or Akushizu no Sento. This episode originally aired on January 17, 1987. It was written by Kamata Hidemi and directed by Sekita Osamu, with storyboards by Takizawa Toshifumi. For our research this week, we have another installment in Heike Monogatari Breakdown. But first, it is time for the 38th episode of Radio Free Shangri-La. The Scene A hallway on the Neo Zeon Channel's battle reporting flagship Ninalan. As the hunt for Tom Thompson, the cast of Radio Free Shangri-La, and the hijacked cruiser Nindra continues. The ship lies docked in a side six spaceport. A handful of senior executive interns huddle outside the door to Captain Nina Ninastadder's quarters. We got another message from Core 3 this morning. Lady Haman wants an update on Captain Nina's daughter. We've got to tell her something. You want to tell her we failed our mission? We can still salvage this. We just need some time. But we didn't do anything wrong. Lady Amon sent us to watch Captain Nina's daughter and keep her stable. Does she seem stable to you? Maybe she's gotten better. I'll check. (laughs) Tonight's top story, repent, sinners, for the end is nigh. The sky will rain fire down upon the just and the wicked alike. Plagues of Gabflay will descend upon the earth. And I shall stand at the right hand of Lady Haman forevermore! 
Now here's three different Toms Thompson with sports. Over to you, Toms. How did this happen? She seemed totally stable when we arrived inside six. There was a product recall on Nutipify orange-flavored chewables. Apparently the synthetic citrus flavor amplifies the effects of the Flanaganapram and can cause over-enhancement. It can't be that. She only takes the persimmon-flavored ones. How can you be so sure? Because she makes me feed them to her, along with her daily bowl of peeled grapes. What if there are other cyber news types nearby? I guess that could cause this kind of response, but none of the other NZC cyber news types are anywhere near here. Plus, I just got off the call with the interns who work for Glamis cyber nude type program, and they said that his are all still asleep. Could someone else be trying to enhance broadcasters? Meanwhile, aboard Radio Free Shangri-La's cruiser Nindra. We finished off the last one, so I opened up another crate of those orange gummies Tim left for us. Does anyone else want some? I'll take a handful. Mmm, fruit snacks. I can't wait to get out of here. I keep thinking that NZC battleship in the next berth is going to notice us any minute now. We'll leave as soon as Tish gets back from her meeting with Mr. Timson. I still say you should have let me go instead. I'm much more disposable than you are. Hey, don't talk like that. You're just as much a part of Radio Free Shangri-La as the rest of us. None of us are disposable. That's right. Yeah. You're darn tootin'. One for all and all for one. But at that very moment... I'm glad it was you who came to meet me, Tish. I've always known you were the only one in Radio Free Shangri-La with the talent necessary to be a real star. Thank you! The others were useful, but disposable. Not like you. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I agree, but I do like hearing you say so. Oh, there's no need to be modest. Even after I started drugging all of you, the others never came close to your level. You have to have seen that. Hang on. You've been drugging us? Was that not obvious? I feel like that was obvious. Didn't you ever wonder why the coffee tasted so funny? But then we stopped drinking the coffee and switched to... Oh my god. Did you put drugs in the Become a Monster? Not personally. Why? Why would you do that to us? I just wanted to bring out your latent potential. You all were going nowhere when I found you, and now look at what you've accomplished as enhanced broadcasters. RFS is the 12th highest rated independent pirate radio station in the Earth sphere. All I really did was give you a little push. I guess that's true. And a few liters of expired hallucinogens. What? I said, why don't you come with me, Tish? Think of what we could accomplish without Radio Free Shangri-La holding us back. You could be a star. Bigger than Nina Nina's daughter herself. You just have to help me destroy her first. I do want to be a star. But no, I won't abandon my friends. Not after what you've done to us. Can't you see that everything I've done, everything, has been to defeat Nina? She is the real villain in this story. She wants to create a media monopoly throughout the whole Earth sphere, dominating every station through high ratings, manipulative propaganda, and abusive working conditions. That's exactly what you want. No! 
I want to use a media monopoly with high ratings, manipulative propaganda, and abusive working conditions to get revenge. You're a monster. I'm not hearing a no. No. I'm leaving. And I'm so glad your body double isn't anything like you. Tish. Hey, Tish, wait. At least take this with you. It's a sound effects cassette. You might need it someday, and... Well, despite everything, I am still rooting for you kids. No longer friends, but not yet enemies. Tim Timson and Tish Tishvale part. Perhaps for the last time. But their meeting has not gone unnoticed. An NZC intern picking up lunch from the nearby food court spots the fugitives and follows Tish back to her ship. Soon, his report reaches the Ninalan. Lady Herman will have to forgive us for losing control of Captain Nina's daughter if we recapture the Nindra. Prepare a boarding party. And now the recap for the Battle of Axis. Mobile suits cling to the outside of Mashima's ship like barnacles, and still more trail behind, towed on a length of cable. Across the fleet, crews stop to listen as Mashima makes a stirring speech about the imminent battle. There can be no mercy for former comrades turned traitor. Who among them will win fame and glory as they show Glemmy's forces the wages of sin? The wages of evil. In a mirror image of the scene, Glemmy addresses his own troops. Haman is the real traitor, using Princess Minevah to control a false Zeon, while they work for the true Zeon. Whoever kills Haman will be a hero for all of space, and receive rewards beyond imagining. But he is beset by private worries. These soldiers were loyal to Haman mere days ago. Can he trust them now? And his dream may be a blood dynasty governing Zeon, but what if his own background is deemed too impure to rule? There is no sign of the expected Federation reinforcements, and the Gundam team busy themselves recovering parts and supplies from the wreckage of the La Vienne Rose. When they recover the dock ship's black box, Millie clutches it tearfully. The grief of their losses and the stress of impending battle make them all tense. Some bicker, some joke, some find a place to be alone. Yet the question looms, what should they do? They ultimately decide to move against Glemmy. Bicha stays behind to command the Nail Argama, while Judo, El, Rue, and Mondo launch mobile suits. Chiara and Mashima launch with eager, unhinged laughter. Rakan charges across the battlefield, impatient to meet the enemy, and Pudutu keeps pace with Glemmy's main force. Chiara scatters Rakan's squad in a burst of beam fire, leaving Nian Lance to gang up on Rakan himself. Pudutu is hit by new type pressure, surprised to find it's coming from Mashima. She launches the Queen Mantha's bits, 
but Mashima slashes, shoots, and dodges his way through the cloud. Eyes darting, he charges through Pudu 2's defensive beam fire. Their sabers clash before both push back and away from each other. Rakan manages to grab Kiara from behind, but she laughs a taunt before hitting him with her mobile suit's engines and hidden rear beams. Thrown back, Rakan launches the Dovenwolf's fist at his adversary, but Kiara continues to fend him off. Judo checks on her, but her initial surprise and happiness to see him turn to suspicion and confusion. Why would he be helping her? Is he really there, or did she imagine him? Her head aches and she flees the battlefield, Ni and Lance chasing after her. Mashima is taken unawares by Rakan and his squadron. Cables wrapped around his mobile suit's limbs are pulled tight, immobilizing him, then shot through with electricity. Rakan orders his men to fire, but Mashima, in a fervor of loyalty and fighting spirit, begins to glow with new type power. The shots are deflected. With a pull on one of the cables, Mashima reels in one of the squad, crushing the mobile suit and pilot with his own suit's hands. A globe of light emanates from Mashima, expanding outward, while a thin stream of energy shoots from his forehead. A hint of fear in his voice, Rakan orders his pilots to retreat. With a shout of, Haman Banzai, Mashima is engulfed in light, the expanding ball of energy finally exploding and dissipating, taking Mashima with it. New types across the field sense his death, and Haman laments the loss of one more pawn in the game. Rakan continues to retreat, and Haman orders Kiara to return to the flagship, but Kiara refuses. Mind calm again, she has the enemy in her sights. Axis is dead ahead. However, even as she drives toward Glemmy's recently taken prize, a huge squad of mobile suits emerge from the Axis spaceport. This episode's structure, in terms of the order and progression of its scenes, really encourages comparison of the different factions, different characters, and the Gundam team as observers to the action here. They're really not central to the plot. For all that we get interesting scenes of them, compelling emotional moments happen, none of those moments are essential to the main action of the episode. And this episode as a whole is really just sort of treading water. Some important developments do occur in the course of this episode, but it doesn't actually change the state of play very much. We still have these two Xeon factions rushing headlong into a civil war. We still have the Gundam team on the periphery trying to figure out what to do. And we still have the Federation forces somewhere far away biding their time. We close the episode almost exactly where we started, but along the way we get all these great scenes that bring out a little bit more of who these characters are. I don't know how you can say the state of play isn't changed when Mashima dies and the end of the episode is a cloud of what appear to be Kubele launching from Axis. I mean, yeah, that's true, but 
as important as he has been to the story, how much does Mashima's death really affect this conflict? Haman has lost some people. Glemi has lost some people. Both of them are setting up to make their final moves and play their final cards. Speaking of the two of them, and ways in which they get contrasted within this episode, Haman is wearing what I think of as her battle gear. The pointed headdress, the very particular uniform that she wears when they're going into battle, and she's on the bridge of her ship. Whereas Glemmy is wearing the same uniform he always wears and is on a lounger (laughs) (laughs) drinking wine. I think that's cognac, but yes. But at the same time, Glemmy is the one who seems to feel very conscious of the deadliness of the situation. When Rakan calls him about, I don't want my suit to be painted the same colors as all of the other suits, how dare you? And he says, fine, do what you want. (laughs) Afterwards, he thinks to himself, how could somebody care about something so petty when they might be going to their death right now? He has death and mortality on the brain. Haman's reaction to one of her longest-serving pilots dying is, ugh, I'm out another pawn. But you can tell that this has affected her from the way her expression shifts as as she says this. Not that she felt affection for Mashima or like she's emotionally wounded by his loss, but I do feel like she's seeing it all slip away. And this didn't occur to me until I was taking my notes and collating them. But Haman is not the one who gives the speech to her troops. She has Mashima do that. Whereas Glemmy speaks to his own troops directly. We already know that Haman's motives for all of this are deeply personal. Glemmy at least claims to himself that it's not personal. He's sort of talking to himself before he goes to give the speech to his own men. And I won't say a person has no reason to lie to themselves. We probably have more (laughs) reasons to lie to ourselves than we want to admit. But he claims that while he's aware of the risk that they'll say, your blood is too impure to lead true Zeon, he still believes in this blood monarchy system for Zeon. Yet it is also evident from the speech that he then gives that Glemmy does not have a lot of confidence that the people following him are also as committed to this Zabi bloodline as he is, because he offers them a very practical material inducement. Bring me the head of Haman Karn and you will be rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. As he very fairly points out, these are all soldiers who were pledged to Haman as of several days ago. <laughs> Uh, and only recently switched sides. So he, he is concerned. He knows it's not ideological for most of these men. And it means that whether he thinks it's a good idea or not, he basically has to promise them conquest because it's the only way he has anything to give them. But contrast that with Mashima's speech, which is all about morality. Mashima's appeal to his soldiers is they have betrayed us, they are evil, they need to be punished. Give to the sinner the wages of their sin. Right, they're evil, they're sinful, but they are also powerful and former comrades. Like, he acknowledges 
those two sticking points, potentially. Mm -hmm. In true Mashima fashion, he does emphasize the fame and glory that is available for the taking. Glemmy's speech touches on similar points, but it's more complicated for him, and I think that's part of why we get the material inducement. Because for him, it's very much that Haman is evil, but her men aren't necessarily. <laughs> Haman is using Princess Minevah and creating a false Zeon. And he also says whoever destroys Haman will be the hero of all space. But he knows these points aren't enough on his side. In calling Haman's version a false Zeon, what Glemmy is doing is as we would expect from him, conflating the Zabi family with Zion. The Zabis are the true leaders, and Zion is whoever rallies to their cause. Whoever follows the Zabis is part of Zion. Haman's Zion is a very different construction. Haman's Zion is a nation, a nation with a dictator, but a nation that has an identity outside of its ruling family. What did you make of the seemingly spontaneous chanting of the last lines of Mashima's speech by all of his soldiers? It's a great, haunting moment in the show. While I do think it's very powerful, it wasn't surprising to me because it's not that different from the cheer that rises up out of a group after any stirring speech. Someone gives an inspirational speech to their soldiers and they yell, Hurrah! Or, God bless America! Or, Nihon Banzai! Or, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's subtle, but I think Elia is surprised. I think they draw her that way. And the way it starts with just like one person saying it and another picking it up and another and it spreading through the whole group of them. I don't know, something about it felt important and significant, and combined with what Ilya says about how Mashima had been perfectly imprinted for exactly this moment, I found myself wondering if this was his power, psychically connecting to all of his soldiers and linking them in this unity of, of spirit and intention. It's rather funny to think that where most cyber new type imprinting, I guess they're calling it that now very consistently, but they didn't always call it that. No. But anyway, that the cyber new type imprinting may actually have made Mashima seem more normal and stable rather than less. Because if he were giving this same speech at the beginning of Double Zeta, it would be silly and over the top and flowery and probably a little awkward for everyone. <laughs> everyone would be touched, but like kind of weirded out by their overly earnest commander. Right. And instead, he pulls it off perfectly. And Ilya credits the imprinting for doing that, and that's so counter to all of our previous experience of what new type modifications do to a person. One of the other sets of contrasts that I saw in this episode is between Haman's lead pilots, Kiara and Mashima, and Glemmy's lead pilots, Rakan and Purutu, and then even within each of those pairs, contrasts between the two people. Kiara and Mashima are both very recently imprinted. Puru too, it happened some time ago. And then we have Rakan, who there's no indication that he is a cyber new type whatsoever. 
Chara and Mashima have minders. Rakan has a squadron. But at the same time, Rakan is the one impulsively charging in to the fray. All of the others seem a little bit more measured, at least at the beginning. Though Kiara does have that line about how it's been so long since she felt the excitement and how she's missed it, she's into it, in a similar way to Rakan. But there's no sense that she's charging ahead in a way that she's not supposed to, mm-hmm. versus Pudutu makes a comment about Rakan kind of breaking up their line or leaving the group because he's so excited <laughs> to get into the fight. Well, he's a very old-fashioned warrior, given his attitudes, could have easily stepped right out of the tail of the Heike. He has a vanity that none of the others seem to have. In the research I've been doing for the Tales of the Tale of the Heike, Heike Monogatari Breakdown segment, is that as this warrior class was emerging out in the provinces, they were becoming very wealthy, but their cultural interests, their aesthetic concerns, were very different from those of the traditional aristocracy, who were much more learned and literate. And so they spent their wealth in very different ways. And one of the main ways that they spent their wealth was in the purchase and construction of incredibly opulent, really, really good-looking combat gear. The armor, the weapons, the clothing that goes with the armor, special woven cords, it's a huge investment in looking good on the battlefield. And that focus on him wanting his mobile suits to look a particular kind of way fits into that. And yet he is also, of everyone, the one most willing to retreat when it seems necessary and to protect his squadron. He's not hesitant about it, and there's no sense that he feels ashamed by it. I want to draw the connection between Kiara, who, despite her excitement, is much more restrained, at least at first, and what you were saying earlier about Mashima, because it does seem like whatever additional enhancements were done to Kiara were also done with the intention of sort of taming that over-the-top personality that she had at the beginning. There's a scene at the very beginning of the battle, before Mashima has even launched, where we have Kiara in her cockpit and some evil laughter, and then it immediately cuts to Mashima in his cockpit and some evil laughter. And then we start to see the sort of new type power emanating from him in a way that we've never seen before. Anytime we've seen that, I'm going to say, volume of new type energy coming off of someone, it's been an indication that they are extremely strong. Well, and we see him later in the episode using that power to, like, deflect powerful beam blasts at point-blank range. It's shooting out of his forehead. That was a great detail. And when he um, is first going out and he's all, like, charged up and you can see the power radiating off of him and the way it makes his hair stand on end. I mean, he looks like he's going Super Saiyan. Yes. I actually looked this up. And Super Saiyan form didn't appear in Dragon Ball until 1991. Uh. Uh, so this predates the uh, Super Saiyan. Interesting. There was something so brutal about Mashima pulling in one of the cables that's trapping him and trapping and crushing the mobile suit and pilot at the end of it. Double Zeta has been much more restrained in its use of shots from the interior of an enemy pilot's cockpit, 
we've gotten a lot fewer up-close and personal death scenes in Double Zeta. And there is just something more violent, more horrible about someone killing someone else with their quote-unquote bare hands versus shooting them or an explosion killing them. It's funny you mention that because the Dovan wolves have those arms that shoot off to grab hold and attack, which has, as you pointed out, a peculiar brutality to it, a fierceness, a ferocious and crude feeling to it that is so perfect for Rakan. That scene confuses me a little bit because some things about Mashima's behavior seem to contradict each other. On the one hand, he's making this whole little speech about how he is going to fight for Haman to the death until all the flesh is cleaved from his bones. And yet, the way in which he dies and the way in which he yells Haman Banzai makes it seem like a suicide attack. I concur, but I don't necessarily think it's intentional. And the reason I say this is I think his over-enhanced powers get out of control. Mm. Haman does make a comment that connects the idea of him being over-enhanced to his death. I think he's using so much power to deflect those beams from the Dovan Wolves and to fight on despite having been lassoed by them. And that power, like, you see it sort of explode out of him. You see him grow even brighter and I think it just it's beyond the capacity of any mortal body to contain it. Even his mobile suit can't contain it. I think that's what causes that explosion. And yet Ilya's comment about, oh, was all his spirit just for show? She clearly thinks it was a suicide. I thought her comment was more about him being defeated. Not that he had given up, but that he had lost. Her comment feels so callous, even worse than what Haman says about him, even though Haman like refers to him as a pawn. It's Ilya's comment that really hurts. It's also very much in keeping with the way Ilya has acted around him for the past few episodes. Hmm. I at least have felt a sense of detachment from her, a sense of him as a tool that she's managing rather than him as a person she's taking care of. Mm-hmm. Very different from Nia and Lance, who are quite obviously protective of Kiara <laughs> every time Judo shows up and Kiara goes into one of her mental tailspins. Their reaction is always, who are you? <laughs> every time you're around, it messes up Kiara, leave her alone. And not in a sense of you're messing up our plans, but in a sense of you're hurting her. Yeah, they're devoted to Kiara in a way that Ilya is not devoted to Mashima. Ilya is devoted to Haman and the task Haman has given her of managing Mashima. It was striking to me that after Mashima dies, everybody in space can feel it, or at least all of the important characters. And the ones who seem to mourn him are actually his ostensible rivals, Judo, Kiara, Purutu, whereas his supposed allies, his handler, Ilya, and his mistress, Haman, are really just disappointed in him. In case we needed reminding who the bad guys are. That's not the only reminder of that kind in this episode. When the Gundam team are outlining their plan, 
They specifically say that they want to take out the command ships, but to leave the rest of the fleet unharmed if possible, because they really do see Haman and Glemmy as the source of all of this conflict. I was a little unclear on why it is Judo thinks they need to go out there before their backup arrives. It didn't, his reasoning didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I could be wrong, but I think the situation is that Haman is aboard her flagship in a small fleet that is on the way from Core 3. Then there's Kiara's fleet, which is attacking Axis, and of course, Glemmy's base on Axis. And the Gundam team finds themselves sort of caught in between these different forces, and they feel like they have to knock Axis off the board before Haman arrives so that they're not caught in between the two of them when they try to deal with Haman. The worry is that if they let Glemmy win his engagement with Kiara, then he's just going to hit them in the back when they try to go after Haman. Which I guess I sort of understand. I don't get why just waiting some more for Glemmy and Haman to duke it out is not an option being considered. I mean, that's a fair point. (laughs) But the show needs to happen. (laughs) It would be some pretty stunning storytelling to be like, oh, it turns out the main characters are not important for the ending of this at all. They're just here watching. Like Glemmy, many of the Gundam team are also contemplating mortality. Judo quite explicitly wonders if he will ever live to return to Shangri-La, which is interesting because he didn't seem all that fond of Shangri-La in the first place. But at this point, after a long time away and after having seen some things and had some experiences. I mean, as you said in the eulogy for Emery last episode, home, the Furusato, is not really a place. It's not the real town that you came from. It's an idea, something to long for. Lena's ghostly apparition reassuring Judo that he will, in fact, live and get to go home again feels very much like the writers just wanted us to remember Lena exists. (laughs) Uh, Maybe so. Maybe so. This episode was written by Kamata Hidemi. It's his fifth and final one for Double Zeta. And in writing episodes for Double Zeta, I think Kamata has often struggled to match the characterization that the other two writers have developed for the major characters. Kamata writes some great scenes, and I think this is a great episode, but often the characters don't feel like they quite match what we've come to expect from them. But you know it kind of works here, because we are racing towards the climax, the stress and the tension on all of these characters is really high. They're all contemplating their own mortalities, and that's going to bring out some aspects of their personalities that are not so commonly seen. And in some ways, the fact that we are almost at the end of the series makes these moments feel like character development rather than simply a jump to an unexpected and discontiguous place. Exactly. And we see how trends and pressures and developments that have happened slowly over time are now sort of breaking through and becoming visible. An example of that that I think is very well done is Mondo, who has always been a bit of a goofball. But here we see the goofiness is his own discomfort with grief and the fact that he sees feeling and expressing his grief as incompatible with continuing to get on with the business of living. Like, 
if he lets himself feel sad in the way that Millie is feeling sad for Emery, then he can't do what he needs to do. And the impulse to hide those emotions is so natural for him that when he goes into the hangar to sit in the cockpit of the Hakushiki, you can see in the background he puts his helmet on when he's talking to Astanaji. And I think it's so that when he turns around to talk to Astanaji, you can't see that he's crying. Moments later, a scene that does not do this as well is between El and Bicha. It's very sweet, it's a nice scene. It does not feel in any way connected to their characters prior to this episode. Elle is feeling very pensive, apparently, which is not an emotion we've seen a lot of from her and feeling bad about herself. The translator has her say, I'm mean, aren't I? The Japanese word she uses is iana koto. Atashi te iana koto ne. Which can mean like detestable, unpleasant. I sort of read it as, I'm really unlikable, huh? Or, you don't like me, or people don't like me. And this is right after her uh, little confrontation with Rue, which I thought was nicely handled. It's a reversion to the way they behaved around each other earlier on in the show, that they had kind of moved past, but now, with so much pre-battle stress, they're both uh, taking it out on each other again. Yeah, that felt very much like a stress response. I don't see how Rue is thinking about a quote-unquote final confrontation between Judo and Haman and not thinking about death and then getting mad at Elle for bringing it up. But okay, Rue. Presumably she is thinking about it and she's mad because she doesn't want to be thinking about it and other people bringing it up forces her to think about those things she doesn't want to think about. But back to... Ellen Bicha, we've never had any indication from Elle before that her confrontations with Rue made her feel bad about herself. So that feels a little strange. And then for Bicha to notice that she's on her own and to very sort of kindly and gently talk to her about it is not really how Bicha has acted in the past. He has that line about, I always try to be nice to you, you just never notice. And it's, uh, I guess that was all happening off screen. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly we've seen him be jealous. Yeah, you can totally see how this happened, though, because when Kamata is writing episodes, it does feel like the setting notes are poking through a little bit more clearly. And I'm sure that somewhere in the setting notes, it says that Bicha and Ale have an on again, off again kind of thing that was alluded to back in the, uh, the Moon Moon episodes. But it is, I mean, it is sweet. As you pointed out, it's a, it's a nice scene. I liked it so much that I could kind of look past how out of character it felt. It was nice to see Bicha be sort of bashful instead of full of bluster, which is his normal M.O. And it's a strong scene for him in general. He's all fired up. He's giving the right orders at the right time in the right way. He's on top of things in a way that we haven't seen before and responsive to what's going on around him and being respected, more or less. He has been working on himself. He has shown a lot of growth. Probably the most growth out of all of these characters. It is very cute to see Ellen Beecha sort of dance around what amounts to a declaration of feelings, but is much more implication than declaration. Although, under normal circumstances, Elle saying, 
if I get out of this alive, you'll say it to me again, won't you? Would be a huge death flag <laughs> for one or both of them. Yeah. It didn't feel like it in this one, but under normal circumstances, it would be. I think it's fairly safe to say that the two of them are both skating on thin ice going forward. Requited affection? We cannot have that in our Gundam. Dangerous. And they're already on the same side. They're not rivals or enemies. We have not had a romance like this since Hayato and Frabo. Unacceptable. One final bit about the Gundam team. I really enjoyed Astanaji's scenes. Really truly believed for a moment that Mondo was going to launch all on his own. Because that's what people do, right? They get mad and then uh -huh, they get in their uh -huh. mobile suit and they launch by themselves. And Astanaji just sort of goes, oh, Mondo, and shakes his head and goes back to work. <laughs> and I got such strong, like, I give up. There is no controlling these uncontrollable kids vibes from Astonaji's body language and voice acting there. It mm -hmm. was perfect. It was great. And then, of course, Mondo didn't launch, but it, you know, it worked. It was nice. And then Astonaji's line to Judo about... Oh, well, samurai used to spend the night before battle with their weapons and away from women. I wasn't sure if he was explaining to Judo what he was doing working on the mobile suits by himself or if he was giving Judo advice. I thought he was talking about Mondo, that Mondo had like spent the time in the cockpit, not meditating exactly, but preparing spiritually for the battle to come. I suppose, but he mentions it after Judo sort of floats up and is peering over Astonaji's shoulder at what he's doing. That's true. But it was funny, and it was what inspired us to ask the question, is Astonaji a weeb? Talking about samurai. If we ever went into Astonaji's quarters, would we just find, like, walls of anime? And a katana, obviously. <laughs> And now, our continuing adventures in The Tale of the Heike. Over the past four episodes, I've given you several centuries worth of political and personal backstory, showing how the emperors gave way to the regents, who were displaced by the retired emperors, and then at last how Kiyomori, leader of the sprawling Taira clan, overcame his Minamoto rival and became the singular power at court. That was in 1160, and Kiyomori would spend the next two decades consolidating, and enjoying, his newfound power, while his defeated enemies licked their wounds, and his so-called friends nursed their jealousies. In 1160, when Kiyomori quelled the Heiji disturbance and secured his power in the capital, the retired emperor Go Shirakawa's son held the throne. But he died young at 22, and was succeeded by his infant son. Three years later, that toddler emperor was compelled to abdicate in favor of an uncle, Takakura, another of Goshirakawa's sons, and closely connected to the Taira. Through it all, Goshirakawa continued to manage the imperial household, but everyone knew that the real power was Kiyomori. To give you a sense for just how powerful Kiyomori has become by this point, the tale of the Heike opens with a list of his accomplishments. His sons all held high offices, and the eldest two shared command of the palace guards, a rare honor. 
His grandsons also held high rank, and of his eight daughters, several married high officials, one became a consort to Go Shirakawa, two of Kiyomori's daughters married successive Fujiwara regents, one married the Emperor Takakura, becoming the Empress, and, when her son eventually took the throne, mother of the realm. Of the senior court nobles, sixteen were from his Taira house. Of the men who were granted the privilege of entering the emperor's presence, thirty were Taira. Sixty more from his extended family held important government positions. And of Japan's sixty-six provinces, thirty were ruled by Taira governors. Half the realm thus belonged to them, without even accounting for their private estates, the countless fields that fed their armies and their coffers. Their homes overflowed with imported luxuries, they indulged in every type of pleasure, building great halls for dancing, singing, magic shows, and circuses. As for Kiyomori, when he wasn't dominating the court, he dallied with shrine maidens and servant girls, took popular entertainers as mistresses, and discarded them callously when he grew bored or when his attention drifted to some other new conquest. He enjoyed every debauchery and ignored every rule of decorum. Like their patriarch, his sons, his brothers, his grandsons, they all grew from proud to arrogant. They abandoned any pretense of respect for such things as rank or age. In 1170, one incident in particular reveals just how haughty these Taira had become. One of Kiyomori's grandsons, a boy then 13, ran afoul of the Fujiwara regent. This was merely a ceremonial title at this point, but it was still an important one, and the man was, according to all protocol, due significant respect. However, the boy refused to apologize for his slight, and the regent's men chastised him. Humiliated, he went to his grandfather's mansion and told him what had happened. And in return, Kiyomori dispatched an army of several hundred ruffians to ambush the regent and humiliate him in the streets in front of the imperial palace, along with his entire entourage. It is in such an atmosphere that the first stirrings of what would become the Genpei War began. And like many good stories, this one starts with a conspiracy. In the late 1170s, a group of court officials, palace guards, and police officers began plotting a rebellion against the domineering Kiyomori and his family. What's more, these men were all long-standing friends and allies of Go Shirakawa. The retired emperor himself was not directly involved, but he also wasn't not involved, if you know what I mean. Of course, the conspiracy was betrayed, and in 1177, Kiyomori, an old hand at suppressing coups by this point, wasted no time arresting everyone involved. In a somewhat funny twist, one of the court officials who was arrested in this purge was involved in enough different plots that when he returned home to find his mansion swarming with soldiers, he assumed he was in trouble for a completely different conspiracy. The ending to his story is less funny, though 
he wound up exiled and then murdered by Tyra agents. Those others in the conspiracy who enjoyed high rank or influential friends were banished. The lesser among them were simply executed. One, a lowborn monk named Saiko, had the audacity to call Kiyomori an upstart to his face. And for that crime, Kiyomori had the man tortured to death. Though his inner circle was decimated, Go Shirakawa himself remained too important and too tangential to the conspiracy to receive such a harsh punishment. Even still, Kiyomori might have indulged his wrath, but he was restrained in this, as in all things, by his eldest son, Shigemori, the best of the Taira. The tale spends several chapters expounding on just how great Shigemori was. I doubt I can do equal justice here, but suffice it to say, he was an absolute pillar of virtue and wisdom. He could even, so they say, see into the future through his dreams. All of that means, of course, that had he succeeded Kiyomori, the Tyra House may have reformed itself in his model and continued on for centuries to come. But for the Tyra to fall, as they must, Shigemori had to die. And so he did, suddenly, and apparently of natural causes, in 1179. He was only 42 years old. His death came just two years after the conspiracy was uncovered, and Kiyomori responded to it with a new round of purges. Perhaps the Tyra Lord was motivated by rage and grief over the loss of his son. Perhaps he hoped to demonstrate strength in the face of the loss of such an important member of his clan. Or perhaps he was simply free at last to follow his own impulses without any chiding from Shigemori. Whatever his reasons, he ousted and exiled practically every official whose loyalty he considered unreliable. Governors, ministers, guards, captains, even police lieutenants. Some 40 men in all lost their positions and were banished. In their places, he installed more Tyra, or those men who, despite having no familial bond, owed Kiyomori personally everything. Then he moved against the retired emperor. Go Shirakawa was compelled by force of arms to leave his home, and then imprisoned without attendance in a mansion so decrepit that the destitute ex-sovereign, with just one old vassal who had managed to sneak past the Tyra guards, had to chop up support beams for firewood just to make it through the winter. Months passed like this. Go Shirakawa watched the birds fly away and the ice form in the Garden Lake. The year 1179 reached its end. To quote from the translation of the Heike by Royal Tyler, the tiniest detail of his days injured his heart in some new way, and memory kept him in its thrall. In the winter of 1180, the heir apparent, who was not yet two years old, came of age and Emperor Takakura abdicated in his favor. Takakura was at this point a wizened 18 years old, and he had reigned for 12 of those. The new emperor was named Antoku, and his mother was Taira no Tokuko, the daughter of Kiyomori. The Taira lord had become the emperor's commoner grandfather. 
He and his clan personally ruled some half of the country, and he held all the highest possible honors. His ruthlessness, combined with a hefty dose of good fortune, had propelled him to the absolute apex of his world. But had he already sown the seeds of his own demise? Oh, you had better believe that he had already sown the seeds of his own demise. After the repeated purges, imprisoning a former emperor, and deposing Takakura to install an infant on the throne, everyone at court knew that Kiyomori was in charge. But increasingly, no one wanted him to be. Among those who were nursing personal resentments against the Taira was an imperial prince named Mochihito. Mochihito was Go Shirakawa's second son, the younger brother of the deceased emperor Nijo, and the elder brother of the recently retired Takakura. Prince Mochihito had been passed over before when Nijo died. But now a 30-year-old man, with his father imprisoned, his brother deposed, and a one-year-old puppet on the chrysanthemum throne, Mochihito was running out of patience. But he wasn't a fool. He had lived long enough to see what Kiyomori did to everyone who opposed him. Even his imperial blood would not protect him from reprisal. Other discontented courtiers did try to approach him, but for several months he rebuffed them all. While Mochihito was dithering, he received a visit from an esteemed physiognomist. If you're not familiar, physiognomy is like phrenology but for the face. It's a pseudoscience that claims you can tell a person's character just from the shape of their face, the arrangements of their face bits, the nose, the eyes, moles, etc. Apparently, you can also do a bit of fortune-telling with it, because this esteemed physiognomist took a long look at Mochihito's face zone and confidently declared, My lord, you clearly have the marks of a man destined to become emperor. Which was probably very flattering. The tale doesn't specify what facial features scream imperial destiny to a trained physiognomist, but if you look at drawings of Mochihito, the bits that stand out the most are the overall roundness of his face and the absolute length of his earlobes. So I guess I've got some good news for any of our listeners with round faces and unusually long earlobes. Now, the tale of the Heike does not suggest that this physiognomist was either an anti-Tyra partisan or that he was recruited by the anti-Tyra faction to help convince Mochihito to make a move, but it also doesn't say that he wasn't. Mochihito's principal ally at this point was an old courtier, one of the tiny handful of Minamoto still residing in the capital. It was he who had visited the prince time and again, to remind him of Kiyomori's many abuses and to relate to him the roster of Minamoto lords out in the provinces eager to avenge the humiliation their house suffered those two decades prior. This counselor was none other than Minamoto no Yorimasa, the very same Minamoto leader who had ordered his men to just stand by and watch the battle between Kiyomori and Yoshitomo during the Heiji disturbance. So just picture it. 
Here you have Yorimasa reciting a litany of Minamoto grievances as though he wasn't personally instrumental in causing most of them. Oh, it's all so awful. We'd love to punish whoever is responsible. I mean, too bad it's impossible to say who is to blame. Really, we can never know. It'd be a huge waste of time to even look into it. Convinced at last, Prince Mochihito summoned another of the surviving Minamoto leaders, Yuki Ie, and ordered him to travel throughout the provinces, gathering an army of disgruntled Minamoto to oust Kiyomori, depose Antoku, and win for Mochihito the throne he believed was his. And here's where we begin what I think of as the Ayug phase of the conflict, wherein the arrogant Taira stand in roughly the same position as the Titans, claiming to protect the imperial court, or the federation, but in fact dominating it for the sake of their own power and ego. Opposing them is a loose, poorly organized alliance of malcontents, pushed into violent resistance by the increasing brutality of the way that the Tyra, or the Titans, are suppressing any dissent. Yorimasa, the old soldier turned politician, might be blacks. Minamoto partisans are spread throughout Japan, just like the Xeon remnants, while the bulk of the Minamoto, including the heirs to that defeated dynasty, are, like Axis, watching events unfold from their distant exile waiting for the right moment to make their return. Yuki Ie, who I've only just mentioned as the man that Prince Mochihito sent to rouse the Minamoto, was himself a survivor of the Heiji conflict, and he had been lying low in semi-exile to escape Kiyomori's wrath. When the time came to return to the stage, the very first thing he did was change his name. I'm not saying he was a direct model for Quattro Bugina, but he was at least a bit of a Quattrobagina type. Now with agents riding through the provinces trying to gather every possible sword to Mochihito's cause, it was only a matter of time until word got out of what he was planning. Down in the Kumano region, word of the prince's plot reached three shrines, each of which maintained its own army of fighting monks. Of these shrines, two were staunch Minamoto allies, but the third was in the hands of a Tyra loyalist. When he caught wind of the uprising, he raised his own army and launched an attack on the other shrines. Beaten back after three days of fierce fighting, he fled for the capital to warn his masters. Now learning of the rebellion, Kiyomori dispatched police to arrest the prince. Warned by his advisor Yorimasa, whose part in the rebellion still remained a secret, Mochihito disguised himself as a noblewoman and slipped out of the city, headed for the fortified temple of Midera, on the southern coast of Lake Biwa. But one of his warrior retainers, a man named Nobutsura, stayed behind. My lord, it would bring shame on us if the police arrived and found your palace empty. I will not have it said of me that I fled out of fear for my life. The police arrived at midnight, the hour of the rat. 300 horsemen led by two Taira officers. This Nobutsura waited for them on the veranda, and when they announced their intention to arrest the prince, he hurled abuses at them. You understand nothing, you policemen. Barging through our gate, dispatching your lackeys to search the palace of an imperial prince? How dare you! A squad of underlings leapt up to confront him, 15 in all. Nobutsura cut the cord on his hunting cloak and tossed it to the wind. 
He drew his sword, but it was no fighting weapon, merely ceremonial. Still, he went at them with it. They came at him with halberds and long, plain swords, but he slashed here and cut there. He became a wind among the leaves. As they fought, Nobutsura fell back into the house, and the police pursued him, but they were strangers to those darkened halls. Nobutsura would emerge from the shadows into the light of the full moon, strike, and vanish again, his footfalls covered by the shouts of battle and the screams of the dying. One man he drove back the full length of a long corridor, another he caught in a corner. His blade bent, and he straightened it under his foot. Then, on another thrust, it shattered in his hands. He would have drawn his dagger then, but it was already lost in the melee. A policeman with a spear fell on him and put the point cleanly through the muscle of his thigh. Thus he was captured, but even so he refused to be cowed. When they dragged him before the Taira leaders, Nobutsura scoffed. <laughs> Were those policemen who invaded my lord's mansion? They seemed more like bandits to me. They claimed to have official orders, but I do not recognize their authority. The man's audacity impressed Kiyomori, and for once he found some mercy in the twisted chambers of his heart. Nobutsura was allowed to live in exile. And while the Taira were busy subduing Nobutsura, Mochihito reached Midera. Allow me to digress for a moment and point out that one really cool thing about the tale of the Heike is that most of it takes place in Kyoto, and a lot of the streets and landmarks are still there. So we know that Prince Mochihito's palace was near the intersection of Sanjo and Takakura streets possibly on land that is now occupied by ramen restaurants, a family mart convenience store, an antiques shop, a yoga studio, etc. We know that Mochihito traveled north along Takakura Street. If he made the journey now, he would pass the Museum of Kyoto and an upscale cocktail bar called Shei Quasimoto. Then he would go through the grounds of the modern imperial palace, but it would be built some 50 years after his journey. The prince then turned east and crossed the Kamo River near Konoe Street, passing what is now Kyoto University Hospital and the Kyoto City Museum of Art. His path led him into the mountain wilderness between the city and the lake. All in all, it was a journey of some six and a half miles, or ten and a half kilometers, over quite difficult terrain. By the time he arrived, his feet bestowed imperial blood on that most worthy grass. But he was among friends. The monks were ready to defend him with their lives. That night, Yorimasa and his sons set fire to their homes and left the capital, leading 300 armed men to join the rebel prince at Midera. And it is there, in the midst of the Ayug phase of the Genpei War, with burning mansions lighting the night sky over Kyoto, that I leave you for today. And next week, we pick back up with Kiyomori's counterattack. In Arthurian legend, Sir Accolon of Gaul was a knight and sometimes companion of King Arthur, and lover of Morgana, Arthur's half-sister. In some versions of these legends, Morgana is a witch and a shape-changer, treacherous, seductive, and deadly. By oaths and by tricks, she brings her lover to fight King Arthur, hoping to use him to take Arthur's kingdom for her own. But things do not go according to plan, 
and Akalon is mortally wounded. Mashima began as a man outside time, his chivalry a joke, his code a liability, his rose-tinted view of the world rendering even the power-hungry and bewitching Haman noble, gracious. His fidelity to Haman, his devoted love, always encouraged but never returned, in the end corrupts the principles by which he tries to live. Out of loyalty, he behaves dishonorably, leading the mission to drop a colony on Dublin. Bereft of his old view of the world, loyalty to Haman is all he has left. And so he wagers all, his ships and his mobile suits, his soldiers and his life. He dies with Haman's name on his lips. The song Green Sleeves dates from the very end, or slightly after, the period that gave us the chivalric code, and there have been numerous different lyrics set to the tune. This version captures Mashima's constancy, and although he is a fool, living his life in a chivalrous, heroic dream, he is also, in some small way, more blessed than the singer of the song. He never sees his love's faithlessness. Alas, my love, you do me wrong to cast me off discourteously. For I have loved you well and long, delighting in your company. Haman was all my joy. Haman was my delight. Haman was my heart of gold. And who but Lady Haman? Your vows you've broken, like my heart. Oh, why'd you so enrapture me? Now I remain in a world apart. My heart remains in captivity. I have been ready at your hand to grant whatever you would crave. I have both wagered life and land, your love and goodwill for to have. If you intend thus to disdain, it does the more enrapture me. And even so, I still remain a lover in captivity. My men were clothed all in green, and they did ever wait on thee. All this was gallant to be seen, and yet thou wouldst not love me. Well, I will pray to God on high, that thou my constancy mayst see, and that yet once before I die, thou wilt vouchsafe to love me. Lady Haman, farewell, adieu. To God I pray to prosper thee, for I am still thy lover true. Come once again and love me. battle for the soul of Zeon rages on, but the night of the Endra's battle is done.
next time on episode 3.44, Perfect Machines and Flawed Pilots. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 46 and Chekhov's New Types. Mother Funnels! An impenetrable web of beams. The sunglasses are genetic. Cosmic Will. Add-ons. The Dark Mirror. Space Ghost Interference. Just like Abawaku, if it'd been full of civilians. And you might fight because of circumstances, but I'm different. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. The eulogy from Ashima included a rendition of Green Sleeves, as performed by Howie Mitchell and Charlotte Williams. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, AU is run from a McDaniels because they're in the pocket of the cyber type beef industry. The Titans are trying to protect the planet with Gaplant-based protein patties. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was submitted by Engel Null. Thanks, Engel Null. And thank you for listening. Good morning. Hello, podcaster. <laughs> Hello, podcasties. <laughs> this is episode 4.44. Ah. Uh, ah. What? I am simply very tired. the opposite of elegance. Ha! I have several examples of that in my note. In this episode? Yes. <laughs> Magnificent. Do you want like a an angry one or you like no, a that's great. silly that's one? That's fantastic. Great. Recording under a blanket is great and all and independently of this weighted blankets are also great but recording under a weighted blanket sucks. Flanaganopram. Flanaganopram. <clears throat> Flanaganopram. What happens next, my friend, is on you. One for all and all for one. 
all of us together for everyone who's here with us and also not here. You're a monster! Hello, this is Tom Thompson for TNN. Currently, I'm Tim Timson, formerly of RFS, and now on the lamb. Alright, but now I have to actually be Tom Tom's clone, the nice one. <laughs> <laughs>